You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Of this series we've been in called Jesus Root and Confusing, where we've been looking at the most controversial and difficult to understand passages out of the Gospels. And this morning, We're looking at Jesus' famous or perhaps infamous words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And let's read the entire text now where that sits in in Matthew to get the surrounding context. This will be up on the screen, I believe. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. This is such a terrifying and horrific passage, not just because it's grotesque, not just because Jesus is, oh, there goes the mic. (laughs) Oh, okay, thanks. (laughs) Oh, no, if it was him, it's cool. I thought it might have been God, actually, you know. We're about to get heretical, so if my mic cuts out or I get electrocuted, you'll, this is going to do wonders for your faith if that happens. Um, <laughs> all right, we're going to go for this. All right, so this scene is terrifying and horrific, right? Not just because it's grotesque. Because if you've seen, you know, Mel Gibson's, uh, oh, come on, what's the name of that movie? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just terrifying and horrific because it's grotesque. Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he's bloodied and battered. No, this is terrifying and horrific because here we find God doubting and despairing, you know, weak and powerless, crying out, God, where are you? You know, this is a terrifying passage, and it's been a troubling passage in the church for generations because of this. And the church has, over the centuries, attempted to mitigate the problems of this passage, to explain it away, to make it so that Jesus isn't really doubting and despairing. A few of those different views have been, uh, well, we're told that only the human side of Jesus is suffering here. I was raised being told, you know, only, G, only the human side of Jesus is experiencing the, the agony and the pain of the cross and this feeling of despair. And he's allowing his human side to suffer uh, the cross so that his blood might redeem us one day. But his divine side, the God side of Jesus, of course, knows that everything's okay and that everything's going to work out in the end. He's, you know, the divine side, the God side of Jesus is totally, totally fine. It's only the human side that's suffering. And that so that the Father might be able to redeem the world with, with his blood. But, you know, if Jesus had changed his mind, right, if he had decided to unleash his power, well, then those, those nasty Romans would rue the day they were born, as surely they're ruining it now in eternity, right? We're, we're told that if Jesus had wanted to, he could have pushed the nails from his hands and feet, healed the, the wounds of his flesh, floated down from the cross in dramatic fashion, and while everybody stood there dumbfounded with just a, a flick of his wrist, he, would, he could lay waste all those nasty Romans and show them what true power really is, if he had wanted to. 
but he didn't because he had to act out this scene. He had to play a part in this cosmic charade, this piece of cosmic theater where he feigned weakness and powerlessness so that God could, you know, redeem the world with his blood. So we're told. Or perhaps you've been told that, you know, Jesus is, you know, quoting Psalm 22 here. And he is. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is an excerpt from Psalm 22. And so we're told that, oh, he's preaching. He doesn't actually mean these words. He's preaching and he's saying once again, you know, look, I'm fulfilling scripture and therefore I'm the true Messiah. He doesn't actually mean these words. This is all exhibition. This is all theater. But, but to turn the cross, to turn Jesus' words, and moreover to turn his suffering into just an act, just a show, just a piece of theater, I think is to rob it all of any meaning, any authenticity. Not just his words from any meaning and authenticity, but his suffering itself from any meaning or authenticity, which I think is the worst thing we could possibly do. So I believe that Jesus was actually crucified. He was really nailed there. To, to say that Christ was crucified and really nailed there is to say that he was there against his will. He couldn't get down. He was really there, really nailed there. I believe. He was really weak and powerless. He really meant it when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This wasn't an act, not in my accounting of this. He was really nailed there. He was really crucified. He was really suffering. He was really doubting and despairing with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he ever heard of Christianity's novel and fanciful idea that he was redeeming the world with his blood. The question, of course, is what do we do with this? What do we do with it? Well, there's a few options. The first of which, one way of looking at it, is to say that the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's solidarity with the so-called God-forsaken ones of the world, right? The, the poor and the powerless, the outcasts, those who are deemed other than. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's solidarity with them. And of course, is this not the meaning of so much of Jesus' ministry and preaching? That God is on the side of the poor and the outcast. In Jesus' day, to be infirmed, to be leprous, to be poor, to be part of this underclass of people was to be regarded as rejected and cursed of both God and man. These were the so-called God-forsaken ones. And we, we can look at the cross and Jesus' words here as the ultimate act of solidarity. God stands with the God-forsaken ones of the world. And to be his disciple, to be a Christian, therefore, to pick up our cross and follow him as Jesus calls us to in Luke 14, this means that we too stand with the God-forsaken ones of the world. We too stand with the poor and the oppressed the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the broken. This is, I think, part of the calling or the meaning of the cross, the crucified God, this social justice gospel that you hear preached on so much here, this political gospel, you might call it that. That's a major meaning, I think, of this scene, that God stands in solidarity with the God-forsaken ones, and we do too. We, we are among the God-forsaken ones of the world. That's, to me, a, a very powerful, I love that reading. That is a great reading of the cross. 
But we can go further than that, and I want to go further than that this morning. I'm going to push the envelope, maybe, of what you're going to be comfortable with. Um, there's a deeper reading. There's a, a more radical, a more challenging reading, an existential reading of the cross that I want, to, I want to get into. And let me just say at the outset, I've already given you one disclaimer. Let me give you another, I guess. That, you know, this is a reading that's been deeply meaningful for me in my spiritual journey. This is an understanding of the cross that's helped me through deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, it might not be so for you, and that's, that's cool, but you're going you're gonna to see why I'm passionate about this, and um, I'll let it stand for itself, and you can always disagree later on, and we can talk about that. So this view basically says that Jesus' alienation from God, his doubt, his despair, his death itself stands as, or signifies, the central truth of the human condition. That we all experience life in the world as utterly godless, absurd, meaningless, at least on an unconscious level. Consciously, we tell ourselves you know, that life is full of meaning, full of purpose, and that perhaps there's even a God that's looking out for us and that's going to make everything okay one day and that's making sure we don't suffer too much in this life. But unconsciously, unconsciously we know there are no such guarantees. Unconsciously we know that horrible things happen, even to faithful Christians all the time. Lives are shattered and never put back together. Unconsciously we know that we are all subject to time and chance. And there is no rhyme or reason for why bad things happen to good people. We, we, we know this. This isn't a hard sell. Unconsciously, we know this, at least. This is the terrible truth of the human condition, and it's something that often drives people into religion, right? It's what drives people often into church or into conservative and fundamentalist traditions because often religion provides a psychological relief from this existential crisis. It, prom it guarantees things, right? guarantees and, and says, you know, God is going to be there for you to save the day. Ultimately, everything's going to work out okay in the end. God's in control, we're told. Even the most tragic events, like the Holocaust or the death of a child, unspeakable tragedies like that, we're told, have some deeper purpose. Some, something good must come out of it. God has some greater purpose or good purpose for the death of even a child, we're told. But the cross says to that, no! No! That is not the case. The meaning of the crucified God, the God who paradoxically despairs of God, the God who is forsaken of God, the God who is alienated from himself, the meaning of this is not that everything is under control, but that life in the world is inherently chaotic and uncertain, absurd, now, this may sound heretical, but it's certainly not unbiblical. Paul believed that the cross was antithetical to even the most prominent philosophies of his day, like Greek philosophy, which taught an Aristotelian understanding of the universe, that the universe was an orderly place governed by certain logos or metaphysics. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the cross destroys that. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom or philosophy. But we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block, a rock of offense to Jews and pure nonsense and absurdity to the Greeks. 
Where is the one who was wise, Paul continues. He taunts them here. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the philosopher? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, says the Lord. Or perhaps better put, I will deconstruct the wisdom of the wise, the philosophy of this age, religious or secular. The cross is antithetical to both. Paul's saying that the cross was absurd to his contemporaries. It was offensive to his contemporaries, both Jew and, Jew and Greek alike, because it represented the absence of God. It represented the absence of power. It represented the absence of an orderly cosmos, at least in the, the absence of an order that we're familiar with. But in this, Paul says, is the wisdom and the power of God. The book of Ecclesiastes makes a similar point. This is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and says in chapter 3, God is testing humanity to show us that we are but animals. There's something you probably haven't heard preached on in church before. God is testing us to show us that we are but animals. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity, all is meaningless, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and turn to dust again. Which, by the way, is exactly what Ash Wednesday is all about, coming up this week, on Wednesday. That's why it's called Ash Wednesday. <laughs> on Ash Wednesday, we make the sign of the cross on your forehead with ashes. The sign of an execution symbol. We might as well be drawing a gallows or a guillotine on your forehead, the symbol of the death of God. And we say these words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is church tradition. This is scripture. This is the meaning of God crucified. And it's meant to teach us to make peace with our mortality, to make peace with our dustiness, to make peace with our finitude, to make peace with absurdity and the so-called godlessness of the world, to make peace with it rather than trying to ignore it or escape it. This is a powerful move right here. This is kind of how we find hope and peace in the aftermath of the crucifixion. Think of this being like AA. All right, like Alcoholics Anonymous. Only those who acknowledge their addiction and brokenness can heal and find sobriety, right? If we refuse to acknowledge the truth of our lives because it's too painful or too scary, then we cannot heal or grow. We cannot be set free from that which oppresses us and haunts us. And this is true in so many different areas of life. Think, or think of this being like therapy. As someone who spent time in therapy, I feel like one of the things I learned is that therapy isn't so much about you know, making sense out of what happened to us. The goal of therapy is not to explain everything, to judge everything, right? In fact, I feel like the point is often to learn to let go of our desire and our need to judge and explain everything and embrace the unknowing, embrace the complexity, embrace the brokenness, the imperfection within ourselves and within others. Embrace this idea that we can live with imperfection, that we can be okay not being okay. That, to me, is, one of, is the most powerful thing that can happen in therapy. That we can find cur the courage to be. The courage to be. That we can find hope and even peace 
in the midst of our lives and our circumstances as they actually are. What a radical idea. This isn't self-help. Self-help says, you know, defy your negative narratives and achieve your dreams and goals. You can be fulfilled. Self-help teaches us you can be satisfied. You can be fulfilled, right? Here's seven ways to achieve your dreams and goals in life so that you can be fulfilled and happy. No, this is antithetical to the self-help teaching. This is saying you can't be satisfied. You can't be fulfilled. Life is complex and full of troubles and sorrows, but in the radical acceptance of this truth, you can find a kind of satisfaction. You can find a kind of fulfillment in your lack of satisfaction, in your lack of fulfillment. This is the radical turn of the cross. Christ crucified, God crucified. And in the aftermath of that, in the radical acceptance of that, we find rebirth, we find resurrection. This strikes me as the meaning of the cross. It's like good therapy. Only by embracing the crucifixion of God, the death of any guarantee or certainty, the death of any guarantee or certainty, only then can we really make peace with life as it really is. Only then can we experience a resurrection, a transfiguration, to use another biblical term. In fact, today is Transfiguration Sunday in, on the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. Today is the day that we commemorate the transfiguration of Christ right before his execution. We too can be transfigured. God himself is transfigured in us in this crucifixion. In this way, I, I see the resurrection is not as an undoing of the crucifixion. I think often the resurrection is, is displayed like that in the church or talked about in the church as like an undoing of the crucifixion. The resurrection is not an undoing of the crucifixion. It's not a cancellation of it. Easter Sunday does not trump Good Friday. Easter Sunday is not an undoing of Good Friday. It, is, it does not trump Good Friday. But the resurrection is the fulfillment of the crucifixion. And in this way, the resurrection and the crucifixion are like two sides of the same coin. They, are, they really should be understood as one and the same thing. One can only experience resurrection and rebirth by first experiencing a crucifixion, experiencing the death of God, the death of certainty. Now, some, somebody, what I've had to say this morning, and, and will say, this is just pure atheism. <laughs> This is just atheism under the guise of Christianity. But it's not. Now, it's certainly atheistic. And aren't we all atheistic about certain gods? Aren't we? I don't know about you, but I can't believe in the God of my youth anymore. I can't believe in the God of evangelicalism anymore. I, I can't believe in a homophobic God anymore. I can't believe in a sexist God anymore. I can't believe in a God that would throw his children into hell. I can't believe in a God with a hell. I can't, I can no longer believe in a God who ordered the Israelites to commit genocide. As we're told in the Old Testament, he did many times. I can no longer believe in a God who said in Leviticus to stone gay people, stone adulterers. I can no longer, no longer believe in an all-powerful God who can save the day if we just pray enough and have enough faith. I, I can't believe in that God anymore because that God to me is a sadistic tyrant. Late last year, up in Northern California, in a church called Bethel, one of the biggest, most prominent churches in the country, this church is responsible for cranking out you know, the most popular worship music in the church. Something horrific happened in this church. Um, one of the worship leaders' toddlers died. 
my two-year-old little girl, I believe it was. And the church marshaled all of its resources. The pastors told the church, keep in mind, this is the mega church with enormous influence, told them, if we but hold vigil and pray our guts out and worship our guts out and have enough faith, God will resurrect this child. I am not making this up. This really happened just a few months ago. You can look it up online. Now, I don't blame the parents of this. I have a two-year-old little girl, so it's kind of hitting me. I don't blame the parents, right, for wanting that and seeking that. But it is pastoral malpractice. Pastoral malpractice to organize the entire church, thousands of people, and to tell them and guarantee if we just have enough faith and if we just pray hard enough, God will raise this baby. That God needs to... I can't believe in that God anymore. I was raised, like so many of you, I was raised to believe in that God. That is a sadistic, psychotic God. And you can see where that theology leads how it re-traumatized that family and that entire church. That is traumatizing to teach people this. You can see the theological, the, the, the damage that theology does. The God who cries out in weakness and despair from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not an all-powerful being. This is not an all-powerful God. At least not in the usual way that we define power. The power of the crucified God is the power of things like love and justice and mercy and, and peacemaking and self-sacrifice. His power is not the vulgar power of magic. The power of God is not about amazing magic, but about amazing grace. The gospel is not about amazing magic but about amazing grace. And maybe this is true power. Maybe this is real power. Maybe that kind of power we should really be standing in awe in. The power of God is not akin to a laser light show at Disneyland, a dazzling display meant to wow us. No, it's the power of things like grace and forgiveness and justice and peacemaking and love and self-sacrifice. That's a power we should stand in awe in. You remember from our text this morning, perhaps, that upon Jesus' death, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. This was the curtain that functioned as a barrier between the presence of God and the rest of the world. No one could go behind this curtain except for the high priest and only he once a year. For this curtain to be torn upon Jesus' death signified the death of the God of the temple the death of the God of animal sacrifices and blood magic, the death of the God of religious law, the death of Israel's all-powerful tribal deity who went before them with the Ark of the Covenant in battle and laid waste to their enemies, as we're told in the Old Testament. This signified the death of that God, that understanding of God. This God dies in the Gospels, and another is resurrected, a God of love, a God of justice, and this God is no longer confined to a particular temple or a particular religion or a particular culture or a particular time and place. This God goes out into the world as a Holy Spirit, a Holy Ghost, everywhere at once, indwelling us, his people. 
This is the meaning of the cross, and it signifies simultaneously both the death and resurrection of God, the transfiguration of God. So what I'm saying today is not atheism, but it is atheistic. It's atheistic about certain gods, but not all gods. Not all gods need to die, just the murderous and oppressive ones. Catherine Sarah Moody says that friend of mine, theologian. There have always been different ways of understanding God in the church. I want, I want to encourage you this morning. I've taken you down a dark road. <laughs> I want to encourage you this morning. I want to do some reconstruction on the back end <clears throat> of this deconstruction. We need some resurrection after crucifixion here this morning. There have always been different ways of understanding God in the church beyond this idea of a supreme being on high, the old man in the sky. Paul once said this in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. This is one of my favorite passages. In God we live and move and have our being. Now Paul is actually quoting Greek, Greek thought there. That was a Greek understanding of the divine. And Paul says, you know what? I like that. I'm going to steal that. In him we live and move and have our being. God is not a being. God is not a being. God is the being of beings. God is the life force, uh, the transcendent consciousness we are immersed in, an energy we are immersed in. We don't have words for this stuff. But this is a different understanding of God that I think we can, we can live into. I find it helpful. Anselm of Canterbury, going back to the 12th century here, folks. Anselm of Canterbury, great 12th century theologian and bishop, famous for saying this. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived of. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived of. And by this, he did not mean that God is the greatest being you can conceive of. He didn't mean God is like Superman. This is way before Superman. <laughs> but you know what I mean. God is beyond human conception, he was saying. God is beyond human conception. Beyond what we understand and yet we experience the divine and the sacred in the simple acts of love and kindness. We experience the divine and the sacred in the simple acts of love and kindness, sharing a meal with a friend, coming to church, sharing in the Lord's Supper, praying together, singing together, meditating together. We experience the divine and the sacred in this. We've, we, we've experience the divine and the sacred in a sense of awe and wonder when we look up at a star-filled night sky. We experience God while looking out across the ocean and the horizon. This sense of awe and wonder, the, the, the astonishment of consciousness, just being, comes with a sense of divine and, and, and the sacred dimension to life, I believe. The simple beauty and grandeur of a flower. Have you ever been on a hike or walking through a garden and just been overcome by the simple beauty of it all. God is both transcendent and imminent. God is both unknowable and yet tangible in so many wonderful, wonderful ways. So I, I want to invite you into a broader understanding of God here at Central. I want to liberate you. I want you to be crucified and resurrected. <laughs> I want you to be set free from oppressive gods, oppressive understandings of God that have held you back, that have hurt you. But I want you to have an open-ended understanding of God. I want you to embrace uncertainty and unknowing. 
while also simultaneously living into the sacred, living into a sense of the divine presence. I know that's a little, sounds a little confusing, but that's life, it's complex. <laughs> we live in ambiguity, embrace it. Embrace the ambiguity of it all. And what, I, what I've shared this morning is, is really my understanding of the cross, okay? This is, and it's been really helpful for me in my deconstruction and reconstruction. Maybe it doesn't work for you and that's okay. Here at Central, the goal is not to believe and think just like Aaron does. We're all on our own journey, right? This is what's, what's worked for me. But I wanna invite you to explore what works for you. And so with that in mind, we're gonna have a little discussion time here this morning. Uh, we're gonna break up, just stay right where you are, you don't have to do anything. Well, you do have to do something, I guess. Uh, just the three or four people around you, um, Engage in a five to ten minute dialogue about this question. We'll come back together at the end and, and talk about it for, I guess, gosh, a few minutes. Um, but here's the question I want you to discuss. How has your view of God changed over time? Has the cross played any role, of that, any, any role in that? If so, how? Take a few minutes. <laughs> 